is Iron Sports, 95.9, 106.9 West Palm Beach. We're uh, very fortunate to have noted author Jake Fisher on, who just wrote a book called Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Air Changed the League Forever. Jake, thanks for coming on the show, right in the heart of the NBA playoffs, to talk about some NBA basketball. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me. I'm excited. So you wrote this book, Built to Lose, and I think there's a lot of people when they hear the word tanking, they don't really understand what tanking means. And you went through the book explaining it, but maybe give you a short little definition of what a tanking actually means in the NBA concept. I think in the NBA, I think it's reflective in the title, right? Built to Lose. Tanking is when front office executives and ownership groups and management all together kind of conspire to put out a roster full of young players that may have potential. Um, but ultimately lack the talent to win games in the interim. And therefore, you know, it's pretty designed for those teams to fall down the standings, get a pretty poor record, which will in turn give them higher chances at uh, the annual lottery to get a top five pick where they could draft a potential superstar that could take them into a winning future. And has tanking gone on? Like, why does it appear that it seems like, six or seven teams tank now, whereas it, it didn't, I mean, I've been a fan of the NBA for years. I didn't, you didn't feel like a few teams were tanking 10, 15 years ago, but maybe they were, and I didn't notice it. No, it's it, the t- tanking has been around in the league as long as anything, but you're right. It's become more of a mainstream trend. And I think it's a direct uh, result of these analytical minded executives. You know, Sam Hinkie is the, the poster child, but you know, the, the book covers this whole period where Rob Hennigan gets elevated um, to become the general manager in Orlando and Ryan McDonough takes over in Phoenix and you have Pete D'Alessandro in Sacramento and David Griffin in Cleveland. All these analytical minded executives really realize that throughout the history of the league to compete for championships, those, those championship teams, they all have multiple all-stars and the most direct route to get them. If you're not LA or New York, it's through the draft. And that's why we're seeing, you know, the strategy become more and more mainstream today. And you mentioned in your book, you went through detail and you had long uh, interviews with all these analytical people in terms of the new analytical general manager, as opposed to, everyone, I, there's still the player general manager, the players, like the mm-hmm. Joe Sumars, Isaiah Thomas. There is that change now. You mentioned, I think, what, five GMs that, that never even said, you know, they never played in the NBA, and suddenly they're making all the judgments and all the calls in terms of the NBA. And, and that's sort of some friction on some teams because you have the players and coaches and then these GMs that have never played the game, and, and that's where the friction comes a lot of times. And you set through that really good in the book. For sure. Thank you. Yeah. I talked to over 300 people. That's kind of my big selling pitch, you know, players, agents, coaches, executives, other ancillary type, you know, personnel around the league for this book to, to find a bunch of original details from transactional stuff to locker room infighting to draft night rumors and all that type of great details that you know, NBA Twitter loves these days. But you're right. I think even through today, I, I think the, the tug and pull of how valuable analytics are and how um, much of a say and an impact they need to have on a coaching staff and actual um, exploitation and and, and implementation into their playing style. It's a real friction point for franchises all around the league today, especially, I mean, it it wasn't just in in the late 2010s and the beginning of of last decade. It's, it's really still prevalent throughout all these teams and these front office structures. And what I loved reading about your book is you went into detail on these drafts and what, what the people thought at the time and also how the team buildings, you went through 13, 14, and 15, really those, those years about yes. what they were thinking about. 
And it's like people were like, oh, we have to draft uh, uh, Oladipo or, or Anthony Bennett, number one. And then you look at the draft and, and you're looking at the draft and Giannis was an afterthought at 15th. And you look at the all-stars of the league and uh, CJ McCollum drafted at 10th and, and Portland and people were thinking, ah, so what? We got, everyone was excited. That's why we, I think, after a draft with the NFL and, uh, and with the NBA, to say that someone's a winner and loser is totally ridiculous because you can't really judge a draft until you know later i mean you you bring the 2014 draft and you have uh, clint capella went 25 joe harrison well actually not played well for the nets he went 33 and then the mvp of the league uh nikolai jokas at denver went 41st in the draft and i mean 40 other players and there's like noah vonley from charlotte and and uh those players all went ahead of napier we snapier we saw went to the heat who are in the league right now yeah, I mean, I, I, the the book uses the draft in 2013 and 2014 and 2015 to be like a vehicle, uh, like as a, a structure standpoint, to kind of bring full glimpses inside these war rooms. And I think the draft is so fascinating being that the whole year comes down to that one night where you're sending scouts all over the world to scout college players, international players, and you bring these guys in for workouts. And then you're also, you know, that the draft also opens up trade opportunities for the entire league. The league calendar is going and flying and there's trades being discussed and for agencies the next week. And at the end of the day, these decisions, when you come on the clock at number one or number 10 or whatever, you only have five minutes to really finalize a decision that could ultimately decide the fate of an entire franchise and more directly, more linearly, the fate of that executive and the coaching staff, and, and their ultimate success and whether or not they're going to be able to keep convincing their ownership group to empower them and employ them to lead this team to victory. So I, I think all that pressure, all those conflicting agendas from the player agents to the execs to the coaches all at once, right when a team's on the clock, it's just fascinating drama. And then you go into detail about the foreign players and we're seeing in the playoffs with Giannis and Luka Doncic and, and all the, and Jokic and all these foreign stars, but it seems like that's where the NBA, I mean, they're making mistakes everywhere on these teams. And that's what I was surprised about. You know, you have all these analytics and all these people that work there and everyone crunching numbers and they're still drafting Jokic 41st and Giannis 14th. But it seems like on the foreign players, that's where they're making a lot of errors. So you mentioned in your book, Josh Harris is now, I don't know how old young his son was on that, but it, it seemed <laughs> like he was a very young, he was, when they were drafting Michael Parker, Carter Williams, he was saying, I love Rudy Gobert, and yeah. he's screaming, and everyone was laughing at him, laughing at him for saying that. This little kid, what does he know? And now Rudy Gobert is three-time defensive player for Utah. Uh, exactly. you see him in the playoff. Yeah, and Giannis is a great detail on that 2013 draft being that a lot of teams had access to his video footage, as, as it's pretty well known now, but very few teams knew what to make of it. It was grainy, and he was playing against all these smaller kids, and the Atlanta Hawks were one team that really wanted Giannis. They had the 17th and 18th pick in that draft, but they knew that they had to trade up in order to get him because they had a pretty big suspicion that the Milwaukee Bucks wanted him at a 15. And the Hawks were the only team to bring him in for a, a workout. They brought him into Atlanta under cloak and dagger. The GM at the time, Danny Ferry, hosted him in, in his house. He had dinner at his kitchen table with Danny Ferry's kids and his wife and Giannis' brother, Thanasis. But the Mavericks just... Again, all, all these things happening at the draft. The Magic were concerned for the 2014 free agency a whole year later. They didn't want to take Atlanta's two first-round picks, 17 and 18, 
onto the salary cap books because they wanted a free salary to go chase LeBron and all those other guys in free agency in 2014. So the Mavericks traded the 13th pick away to Boston where the Celtics took Kelly Olenek, and the Hawks are sitting there heartbroken as the Bucks take Giannis at number 15. So those types of close calls, especially with international prospects on draft night, they can be really gut-wrenching for a franchise too. We're talking to Jake Fisher, author of Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Air Changed the League Forever. Uh, they, you can get this on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and, and anything online or on the stores even, which are open now. It's a great book about the NBA. Um, you go through in detail, and, and this is something as someone who follows the NBA, you hear, oh, this team had a player in for a workout. You all hear about the workouts. And mm-hmm. you, you talk in the book how, like, Dante Exum came, I guess, for the Sixers for a workout, and he went against a, a player, Tim Frazier, and Frazier outplayed him. And so now agents are manipulating the workouts, like who they're working out against because they don't want them to look bad. And then these teams are making these major decisions based upon one-on-one playing, which, of course, the NBA is five-on-five and not one-on-one. It seems so much emphasis on these workouts. Yeah, the workouts have been super important for a long time, and it's really interesting how the best agents can do super creative things to try to manipulate to get their player to where they want them to go. I mean, something as simple as, I found out, I think it's an original detail from the book, it's that Devin Booker in 2015, the Utah Jazz really wanted him, and they wanted to bring him in. They wanted to take him number 12, but Booker refused to go to the Jazz, and that's why that's part of why he ended up being clear to go fall to Phoenix number 13. And you look at the, the Dante Exum situation, like Philly had a lot of pressure to take Dante Exum, being that his father, Cecil, had played um, for Brett Brown in Australia, and, and that, that connection was pretty strong. And, um, I mean, Joel Embiid, is, as, as everything he has become, you know, all that aside, he had injury concerns and had already taken their own well the year before. There was a lot of thought that Dante was the pick, but he hadn't played in like a year, and they hadn't seen him play against anybody who wasn't older than people in the FIBA 19 tournament. So they gave Rob Polinka, Exum's agent at the time, a list of players that Philly had already worked out previously to be like a barometer. And yeah, it's really rare for these top prospects to work out against anybody. Usually they go one on zero against the chair or against six or coacher <laughs> teams, assistant coaches and whatnot. But Polinka said, yes, they thought he'd be able to do well against Tim Frazier, this little pesky, small six foot senior guard who was supposed to go undrafted and did. And when, it, when, when that type of player goes against the top five pick, it's an expectation that's going to be a blowout. And it was, but like you said, Tim Frazier just dominated Dante Exum, and, and from what I was told from people with the team, that 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 workout you know ruled out Dante number three and really cemented the fact that Philly was going to take Joel Embiid. And then you go into detail about and we about how teams move salaries around, and, and you talk about LeBron being courted by the Cavaliers when he was from at, with the Heat, and how yeah. LeBron said, I'm going to get a max contract, and they'll say, well, you sign with us, and then we'll move contracts. He goes, no, you move the contract first, and then I'll sign, and the Heat still thought LeBron might come back, so they drafted a, uh, the Connecticut player that he thought would be great in the draft, and they moved up, and everybody's making these moves to get LeBron, and they're signing people, and, and you mentioned in the book how people like sign people that they think know their personal trainer. All, yeah. it, it, it is a much like like college recruiting now, but also with the salary cap, trying to make these moves to get the, the team. And I sort of let it lead, talk a little bit about uh, the LeBron recruitment and, and because we're down here in West Palm Beach and uh, with Miami yeah. and, and how that played into it. I mean, as that Heat series came to a close in the fifth and the 14 finals, I mean, there was definitely starting to be expectations that LeBron was looking elsewhere. 
And I think the fact that he went to L.A. pretty, you know, steadfastly, I think, in 2018 signals that he really had an interest in the Lakers dating all the way back to 2014. And the Lakers are trying to do everything they could to bring LeBron and Carmelo together to form a big three with Kobe. But they unfortunately shot themselves in the foot by signing Kobe to this big, you know, two-year, $48.5 million extension that November, which prevented them to have the space to have two max cap spots. And like you said, when LeBron and agents are hosting people in Akron, they told all these teams, you know, we need to have a max cap space. And they weren't taking discounts to go join Kobe in L.A. So that immediately ruled that out. And the Cavs, interestingly enough, you know, they had the number one pick that whole time. And how can you not factor in the potential of LeBron James choosing to play for you when you're picking number one, being that that free agency starts a couple days after your draft slot? So Kevin Love, of course, requests a trade from Minnesota right around that same time. And Cavs officials led by David Griffin were clearly in contact with Flip Saunders, who was running the Timberwolves. And they knew the second Joel Embiid broke his foot. I mean, the Cavs officials say Joel Embiid broke his foot in his Cavs workout, we want to talk about the importance of, Cavs, of, of draft workouts. They knew that they couldn't take Embiid anymore. And the pick at number one was probably going to be someone that they needed to use to leverage in Minnesota trade talks with Kevin Love. And I really do think that's a major component as to why Cleveland took Andrew Wiggins to use him as bait to get Kevin Love. That would ultimately help LeBron, you know, resign with Cleveland and do what he did, ultimately winning a title with them in 2016. Yeah, and then there are some teams, and we're, we're down in Miami, Pat Riley, no, no tanking. The Lakers, yes. we're, we're not tanking. We have Kobe, we're re-signing. I mean, there was, there was, a, there was a, some teams that just do not have this philosophy is that we're just going to put a bunch of young players out here. I mean, Miami, it seems like they kept doubling down. Even when Chris Bosh had, had the heart ailment, yes. they, they still, you know, they had brought in Drogic, and they still made moves, and they, then, they, then they signed Jimmy Butler. So there is those teams – that it seemed like perpetually tanking, like Orlando's, right? It seems like they're tanking every year, whereas yes. it seems like Miami is just trying to, to, to win every year. Well, one thing you just touched, the Lakers in Miami are the Lakers in Miami, right? A lot of teams like Orlando and OKC and Detroit, they don't have the option of we're going. We're the most poorly managed team from 2012 to 2017. They had the worst record in the league, worse than Sam Hankey's Sixers, worse than those tanking Magic, worse than the rebuilding Celtics. And it didn't matter. In 2018, LeBron still just decided to join them, and Anthony Davis wants to request a trade, and they win the title in 2020. Miami, you know, it, it was some pretty brilliant cap maneuvering to get Jimmy Butler, but they signed Jimmy Butler in free agency partially because they're Miami. The other teams in this league, they don't have that big of a margin for error. The Sacramentos and the Phoenixes and the Minnesotas and the Milwaukees, they need to nail the draft because they're not going to really attract the, the, the eyes of free agents unless they have an all-star already in place. And the most direct route to getting them is to the top of the draft. And the and most easy way to get to the top of the draft is by tanking. And then you mentioned in the book, I mean, you go through all these general managers, and the Sam Hickey is the poster child, as you mentioned, for, for this, but they don't survive. Like, because yes. you're drafting, first of all, you're taking a risk. Hickey was like, said, I'm going to make mistakes, so I'm going to have like eight first round draft picks, and then I'm going to get Simmons and Embiid, and everyone else is going to, that type of thing. And, and it seems like they, it, they, they keep wanting to tanking, but none, there's, even with, you think, Brad Stevens and Danny Ainge, you think they would, and they didn't even last. I mean, uh, Stevens had to leave, and uh, actually didn't have to, but moved up to the general manager. <laughs> and Ainge left. It's just so difficult for some of these 
I, it's, 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 I wouldn't say difficult. It's almost impossible to tank and then still stay on and, and to, to see the to see your team through to the championship. Yeah, I, I think you know, and, and Sam's situation in particular, but everybody, you, know, you only have so long where you can convince an owner that you're the guy to run his team. And if if you're selling a strategy, flip a switch and say, you know what, you're no longer my guy here. And I think one aspect of tanking that doesn't really get highlighted that I, I tried to in my book is that you know getting these guys is just half the battle. And from there, it's so hard to build a sustainable, successful, and bringing that whole group forward. And then, you know, getting to the playoffs is one thing. Actually bringing yourself to that top echelon of teams and, and being in that title conversation is a whole nother. And it's just that type of, you know, we're just going to tank and get these guys and then we're going to be back there and, and we'll be there and we'll be winning a title pretty soon. It doesn't work that way. And, I mean, Philly, they pushed out Sam. They bring in Brian Colangelo. That whole thing was was a disaster. Elton Brand takes over and he, you know, say what you will, you know, obviously it, he didn't push that team to the next level too. Finally, it, it's been five years since Sam Hinkie got pushed out in Philly that the Sixers are now the number one seed in the East. It takes a lot of difficult cat maneuvering and luck and getting good strategy to ultimately turn those draft picks into something that actually is worthwhile on the court. And what about, and then you have a situation like the Nets who now on one hand, they a couple of years ago in order to get Irving and Durant and then to trade for Harden. So in some, and in essence, they did, I would say tank. And also you talk about in the book about how teams are signing players like Durant who were injured, who weren't going to play the entire year or draft foreign players that aren't going to play in order to then have trade chips to, to trade. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think it's a direct side effect again to these analytical mind executives coming to power and looking at, you know, every single aspects of team building as something to be in their work chest, whether it be cap space to use to bring on a bloated contract to save another team from cap, you know, uh, inability and, and get a draft asset in return or to draft a player in the second round in Europe who you think, you know, you don't want to pay him right now necessarily, but you also can have him develop on another team's dime and you can use his roster spot that you could have used for, him and, and your domestic, you know, situation here in, in America, and you can give it to another player who might need more development time because they're not as good or they're a little bit more raw. There's definitely, you know, been more and more creative um, team building strategies that we've seen over the last couple of years, and I think it's um, all boiled down to the situation where we have in the NBA where the league is now an arms race, and it's all about chasing as many stars as you can and compiling these loaded rosters. And we see that in the playoffs. All these teams that are left right now, they all have multiple all-stars leading this thing off. And I think that's what we're going to see more and more as the league continues to evolve. Well, we've been talking to Jake Fisher, author of Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Air Changed the League Forever. The book just came out uh, this month. And, uh, Jake, thanks a lot. And enjoy the, the playoffs. I mean, this is one of the funnest times of the year to watch every night you know, these great games. So I appreciate you. And I suggest everybody go out and get a book if you're interested in the NBA. Thank you. I appreciate the time, and I appreciate you saying those kind of words. Thank you so much.